Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk again with Sam Vicini, the senior writer at the Athletics College Basketball site and longtime friend of the show, about what has happened in the college basketball season so far, and of course, more accurately, how that affects the NBA draft and the top prospects. So we start at the top and we go through really how that top system has changed in terms of both Michael Porter's injury and how a lot of these guys have played. And then we get into some of his favorite players further down in the draft and what has shifted over the last month, which is fun because of the non-conference schedule stuff. So some teams actually have played some really good opponents. And so we go through all the top guys and then sleepers and teams and players to watch moving forward. This episode is brought to you by Action Heat, which is awesome heated clothing through rechargeable batteries. I love what I have. Go to action-heat.com slash realgm for 15% off. And then our friends at DraftKings. DraftKings, you can get entered in some awesome contests if you use the go to draftkings.com and use the promo code CLNS. And the episode with Sam, as usual, it runs long. It's about an hour and a half. I hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm always happy to do this, Danny. It's always great to chat with you guys about the NBA draft and whatever direction that our conversation goes, because they're going to go 97 different directions. They will. And where I like to start, because we're about a month into the, the, would you say we're about a month into the college season, a little less than that? Is that about right? I mean, numerically, it's a little bit less than that, but I always say a month once it hits December, just because the feel of November is different than the feel of any other month because they have all those early season tournaments and everything. So yeah, I mean, I'll say a month in. And you're right, those early season conferences, because I think that's going to be a fair portion of what we talk about. What that does is it provides a lot of clarity at certain moments just for where we are at the start, not necessarily where we will be at the finish, because there is a lot of ground between now and then. And with guys that are 18, 19, 20 years old, those months can really matter. Even think about a guy like Joel Embiid, who got so much better during that time, and we've seen where that has gone. But how has this month, we'll start broad and then we'll get specific. How has this month changed the way you think about the top prospects? Like, let's say it's that that group of guys that we talked about that were considered for number one. Yeah, I think that we kind of settled on five guys, right, that we thought might have a chance. For me, it's it's kind of settled into three now, to be honest. Uh, I, I would say Luka Doncic is certainly one of those guys. I would say that it's impossible not to include Marvin Bagley in that, given how incredibly productive he has been thus far as 18-year-old freshman just dominating college basketball. And then the third guy I would throw in is DeAndre Ayton. He's shown some warts, but he's also just kind of shown how physically dominant and skilled he's been in a way that translates exceedingly well to the NBA. You know, Michael Porter's injury kind of throws everything for a loop. It would be really hard for me to take Porter over one of the three, those three guys, just knowing what we know now about Porter's injury. Uh, and we'll talk about him, I would imagine, in more detailed circumstances a little bit later. And then the other guy that's just kind of fallen off a little bit for me is Muhammad Bamba. If you remember our conversation early in the year, I was a little bit lower on Bamba than what I feel like some other people are around the NBA. And, you know, certainly I've talked to NBA executives who do like Muhammad Bamba a lot more than I do. But I'm just a little bit lower on him coming into the year. And th- what he has shown so far has 
exacerbated my concerns more than it's alleviated them. Let's start with Bagley, also because Bagley is the player that you and I have discussed the most off the air in regards to this. And it's another great example of how a player and their reputation can change as we add more data, as we add more of a sample, and as they improve. You know, these are guys that are still game to game getting better. And so I've watched a fair amount of Bagley. I've watched two full games, then parts of others. And we talked after the the game that they played against Texas in the PK-80, and I expressed a little bit of concern, not with his talent level, but with how you implement Bagley's gifts on a successful NBA team. And then in the game I have sitting on my DVR and have not yet watched, when they played in the next round, apparently he assuaged some of those concerns, which you also disagreed with more broadly than like you thought they were less strong of concerns than I did. So let's walk through what he is right now and and why you think that that it could work. So yeah, I think that we start with what I thought of Bagley coming into the year. The things that I mentioned were that he is probably the best athlete I've ever seen at six foot eleven. Like I think that that's just kind of being honest. Like his mobility is ridiculous. His motor plays the athleticism up. He's incredibly quick. He is very very explosive. He is incredibly fluid at that size as well. Like his second jump, third jump, when going for offensive rebounds, like it's like a pogo stick uh, in a lot of ways. So. That stuff is all played up at this stage. He's averaging, like, I think if you take out the Michigan State game where he played 10 10 minutes because he got poked in the eye, he's averaging like 24 and 13 or something absurd like that. He's just so gifted in terms of the way he can affect the game on the glass and scoring the basketball right now because he's so much more athletic than just about everyone else is in you know college basketball right now. The other stuff, though, has been the most impressive part to me. We knew that he was going to be productive. We knew he was going to be you know a guy who grabbed rebounds and scored and got out in transition and you know could lead the break and do that stuff. The parts that have been impressive to me is that even over this eight to nine game sample now, he continues to show flashes about what his skill set could be in the future. So Duke is using him more in high screen and rolls with Trayvon Duvall. He'll not just roll to the basket. He'll do short rolls. And then once he gets the short roll, he can make like a left-handed floater or he can do a ridiculous pass on the move to Wendell Carter and create a basket that way. He can pass out to the corner on the move. His ability to pass in transition was something that he showed a little bit in AAU, but it got a little bit wild from time to time. It hasn't been super, super wild yet, in my opinion, at Duke. So that stuff is all really, really impressive to me. The fact that he has about a 10% assist rate is pretty good for a big man whose primary objective is to score, right? It's not like mind-blowing, but for a guy who's 18 years old, it's pretty good. Uh, the defense out on the perimeter so far, he'll like he'll get lost. Don't get me wrong. And positionally, sometimes he's a mess. But the fact that he is able to get down in defensive stance and cut off penetration from even like hyper quick guards on Michigan State or really, really quick guards on Florida State. He essentially defended out on the perimeter against Florida the entire game uh, against Igor Kulachov. That stuff is impressive to me. So it's not even just like the overall production, which is great. And it's why he'll be drafted as highly as he is. It's the rest of the stuff. And I'll cede the floor to you to discuss what concerns you, because I think it's worth 
discussing. Like his his fit in an NBA system is not necessarily as cut and dry as it is for a Muhammad Bamba, for instance, where Bamba you just plug him in play uh, as a rim running, rim protecting five. Yeah, and that, and that's a lot of a lot of good information about the positives. And I I see the positives with Bagley, and it's also worth noting that when you're talking about an 18, 19 year old player, those positives really do matter because nothing is set in stone other than a guy if they have like athletic limitations that cannot be rectified. Like with ba- with Bagley, he is such a good right. athlete that the concerns that I'm going to talk about are not death knells. They are not, it's not the end of him as a prospect. But so at a certain point, it is useful to think about what a player can do and how that translates into an NBA role. And as I always do, I separate out offense and defense here. So let's talk about defense first. Defensively, to me, he has the athleticism, certainly the athletic profile to be an impactful defensive player. And so you can kind of draw two different things there. One is as a as a center. And so if you're a center, then you need to rim protect. You need ideally you can help a little bit on on switches or hedges or whatever you're going to go in that direction. And ideally you can defensive rebound. And as a power forward now in the modern NBA, you need to be able to defend in space. Ideally defend on a switch so you can switch one one through four, two through four, whatever you're going to do, and you know help with defensive rebounding and all that. And so with Bagley defensively. My concern at the beginning of the year was that he didn't seem to have a ton of the scanner center skill set already. And yeah. and a lot of times that is hard to develop. It's not impossible, but it's hard. Like if you if you're not great at reading plays and getting to balls, it does happen that guys get better when they're young, but it's hard. Yeah, I agree. It, it can be difficult for guys to develop defensive instincts. Nine, 18 and 19 year olds, though, are very difficult to scout from a defensive feel for the game perspective. And that's something I'll talk about a little bit more in depth with DeAndre Ayton. But like Marvin Bagley, if you watch him in AAU, he was never asked to defend anything other than going for steals to get out on the break or try and go for like the spectacular block shot, right? I think that entitlement in a lot of ways, like the entitled nature of elite AAU prospects, probably to blame for that a little bit in terms of why it seems relatively rare for an elite high school prospect to end up becoming a elite NBA defender. Do you think that's pretty fair? Yeah, I, I think I think that I do. Like, th- think about who made the all defensive team last year. Jimmy Butler, or wait, that was that was 2016. We'll go through 2016 just because it's what popped up on my computer, right? Uh, so Jimmy Butler, far from an elite prospect, right? Had to go to community college first. Draymond Green, like a four-star prospect, but obviously had limitations that we all have known about and discussed at length. Paul Millsap, not an elite prospect, ended up at Louisiana Tech. Kawhi Leonard was like a four-star prospect, was a good prospect, but ended up being, you know, a guy who had to go to San Diego State and learned under Steve Fisher and wasn't like a hyper top 15 prospect. Paul George, another guy, not like a hyper elite prospect. Tony Allen, not a hyper elite prospect. Avery Bradley is kind of the exception to this to me, but if you think about what Avery's game was, Avery was this undersized scoring guard who had to figure out how to do it, right? He was always a pretty good defender in high school, but he wasn't the hyper, hyper elite defender that he's turned into. But he is kind of the exception to the rule. You have guys now like Rudy Gobert and Giannis uh, who played overseas who have turned into elite level defenders. Uh, I'm trying to think, who, who are some of the other great, Patrick Beverly is another one, Beverly far from an elite level prospect. 
Anthony Davis is another exception to this, but Anthony Davis's skill set was always as the hyper elite defensive player. You know what I mean? So Andre Robertson, not an elite prospect. And and so. we've also we've also seen guys that had that reputation not deliver. Like we're oh, I've been frustrated with Carl Anthony Towns' defense. I mean, he looked great defensively at Kentucky for long stretches. And another Kentucky big man, Willie Colley Stein, who when you were talking about the best athletes six eleven and above. I was actually thinking, well, Colley Stein, I think of Colley Stein as a better horizontal athlete than vertical, though, of course, he can get up. But, you know, I would say defensively, he is disappointed at the NBA level. So that's interesting. I never really thought about in that context. The other guy, he's certainly not at that level now, but it is to think about how long it has taken for Kevin Durant to deliver. But the other the other element that I will caution on a little bit in that, and this is worth considering, is that some of the high-end prospects are that way because of offense. And we have yeah. seen that players with high offensive workloads can suffer defensively. I think of Russell Westbrook as another example here. Although, again, he wasn't a super highly touted prospect if we're talking high school to college. Right. He, he was a guy who in high school had to be an elite level defender to get noticed in a lot of ways. And at UCLA, he was the Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Year and got noticed that way by being a hyper-energetic defender. And then once his offensive usage kind of ramped up in the NBA, he became a less impactful, more apathetic defender in a lot of ways. Like, I think John Wall has kind of always been a little bit overrated defensively, to be honest. He's long, and when he wants to engage on that end, he's engaged in uh, forced turnovers and can be a menace in the playoffs time to time, but his overall defensive game, I, you know, I, I know he gets votes for all defensive team, but I, I've never been like hyper, hyper impressed, you know? It's always been about ceiling with him. I mean, you do see that with guys that capability sometimes trumps actual impact. This I, I've said this a lot about Andrew Wiggins too. People are like, yeah. oh, Andrew Wiggins, like, oh, he's so big, he's so strong, he's so fast. And he is, but... You have to translate that into making life hard on the defense. And certainly those guys can do it. And the other part with John Wall is, as Nate has said before, and it's I, I, it's the truth as I understand it, John Wall is the greatest shot blocking point guard of all time. But shot blocks are a far for a point guard, far from the biggest thing they do. Yeah. You know, you're trying to stop penetration, trying to maybe force turnovers, things of that nature. And so being a guy who can get chase downs is is great. You know, like be that that's a nice thing to do, be able to get help blocks. But it's it, it's only a part of the equation. And it is also because it is A, quantifiable by stats and B, flashy, it can be overrated. Yeah, I think it absolutely is. And you're, you're right. John Wall is certainly the best shot blocking point guard ever. But would you say that that's five percent of defending at the point guard position? Like yeah, it's maybe, maybe like five to ten, something in that range. I mean, yeah. I mean, contesting shots is important, but a lot of John Wall's shot blocks come as like a weak side rotation uh, at the rim, not necessarily blocking jump shots, right? Exactly. So, so yeah. So with Bamba, I th- I think there is there is that physical potential. But would you say right now? like from a physical and from what you've seen perspective that he looks like if you were to define him as the the two ways that I did that he has more of a power forward defensive skill set than a center defensive skill set you mean Bagley right Bagley yeah so that's where we get really complicated and have to kind of discuss like if we think Bagley's body mechanics will allow him to bulk up to like 250 pounds and be a like potential primary room protector because he's actually decent at timing block shots. He's just not always around the rim because Duke runs that 2-3 zone a lot of the time and he is kind of stuck in a corner because they put Wendell Carter in the middle and Carter is often the guy kind of tasked with protecting the rim. 
I don't think he's bulky enough right now to be a primary rim protector. But if you told me in three years when he's 22 years old, he's 250 pounds and has still retained that springy athleticism, he could probably do it. He is, like I said, like his second jump ability is ridiculous. Like if you can teach him how to contest shots at the rim and if you can continue to maximize that natural talent for being around the basketball and he's already an elite level rebounder as a defensive player. It's not out of the question that he could become a primary center defensively especially as the game continues to downsize. At the four, I I think he's probably best as a five defensively, to be honest. I I really do. At the four, though, I think he can at least guard out on the perimeter enough to not be a problem. Like, Like, I think he'll be fine there because he's so quick and so agile. And just because sometimes people ask this, the reason this matters is beyond providing value to your team. Players with unusual strengths and weaknesses are just hard for some coaches to utilize. And if a player is hard to utilize, that increases the chance that they will be underutilized. And so that's why it really does yeah. matter. And so well, you can it's talk not even about just that, I don't think. I think it's building around that player, like from right. a front office perspective as well. Yeah, because what you're looking for, you know, yeah, sure, the ideal player to pair with Bagley is going to be a guy who can protect the rim, do all that kind of stuff, and hit threes. Congratulations. They're like two of those guys in the league, and neither yeah. one of them is going to be available to trade anytime soon. Well, I think that those guys are becoming more and more prevalent throughout the league to be sure but yeah like miles turner would be an interesting pairing with bagley sure porzingis would be interesting like there are a lot of guys that you can look at and say theoretically okay that might actually work but put it this way how rare this is is that it led the oklahoma city thunder to picking serge Ibaka over james harden like that that's how rare that skill set is and how valuable it can be to a winning team because the Thunder essentially thought, okay, if we keep Serge Ibaka, we can legit just put anyone next to him and be fine. That skill set is just so ridiculously valuable. I will note that there were a lot of other factors in that decision, but sure. you're right that that was a part of it. And and the you know the the whole buzz with unicorns that was a part of it is that is it isn't a rare skill set, and we are seeing more of it partially because thankfully big men are now being trained to do a little bit more shooting, and in certain cases some guard stuff. But let's get to the the offensive end a little bit with Bagley. And my concern on that end was, again, with the kind of the center power forward distinction, was how comfortably he could space the floor and then also how related to that, you know, what he can do with the ball in his hands and, and how he can attack it. Because what you ask a power forward to do and what you ask a center to do in certain circumstances are similar, but the thresholds for what is useful and what is excellent substantially change as you get into the bigger spots. Yeah, so I do agree with that. At the end of the day, though, I am willing to live with Bagley's production and try to work around him. So the key, the keys with Bagley are the jump shot, right? Like he's shooting 27% from three on two three-point attempts per game right now. He's a 62% free throw shooter. I think he's going to be able to shoot like not rel- maybe not like soon, but I think that by the time he's like 22, he's going to be able to shoot. He's just such a coordinated, fluid athlete that I think the right shooting coach will be able to kind of harness what he already has as a foundation and baseline, right? Like he's a guy that has uh, not like a super hitchy jumper. Uh, I think that his rhythm is slightly off coming up from his lower half. And that's what kind of throws it off a bit, but that stuff is, you know, relatively workable. Like he has a very workable jump shot in mind. Where I think that we're going to see 
questions is there. And again, like, is he the four? Is he the five? And who do you pair with him if he can't shoot? Again, you kind of have to pair him with a guy who can shoot in the modern NBA. Otherwise, you're running into similar issues to him. Trying to think of like an NBA team that kind of has that similar issue right now. Like this, you watch the Kings and they play like Zach Randolph. Bagley's a lot better than Zach Randolph is right now, but like you know, they, they just struggle to space the floor because he just kind of takes up too much space and is always Charlotte's another one of those. Charlotte's a good example too. Yeah, that's a really good one because they play Cody Zeller and Dwight Howard, and you know they just end up kind of being stuck there. Right. The reason that. I think that you just kind of work around that. And I'm like, for me, the difference between top picks and like super elite level prospects and non super elite level prospects is the difference between being willing to build around their unique limitations versus thinking of them as problematic with Bagley. He's so productive, so athletic, so gifted, so skilled on the perimeter and inside that I'm just willing to build around it. Like, I think that he's a guy that you just kind of get in your system, you let him be productive, and you go from there. Like, we've seen how productive John Collins is early for the Hawks, right? Marvin Bagley is, like, super-duper John Collins. And I think that in the right scheme, that works pretty easily. Guy who just dunks everything, grabs offensive rebounds, plays super-duper hard, and does this thing. I'm fine with working around that, but you have to find the right fits for him early in his career. It's going to be you, hopefully you find a floor spacing five who can relatively protect the rim hard to find, but I think that would unlock him to the best extent early. And then as you continue to develop him, you see where it goes from there, but he's going to be so productive that I think it's, it's, it behooves you to work around that as opposed to, you know, drop him on your board because of it. I think that's fair. And also, it's worth remembering that, broadly speaking, the teams that have high picks, it takes them a while to get better. So they should have other assets to use. You know, hopefully, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's a team that has other draft picks that maybe will have cap space, something like that. So that is a, a, an important consideration. And you know, um, who I think my favorite idea is next to him right now. Okay, among like the top guys. Like, I think if you throw him next to Lowry Markinen in Chicago, that would be really fun. Huh. I would have some defensive concerns, but again, they what, they have invested in defensive guards, so that, that would bring some oh, – that would be fun. Well, so know, that brings they're you both to, mobile enough, too, yeah. to where I think they can kind of handle the perimeter and they can play a defense that will be more reliant on cutting off perimeter uh, penetration as opposed to – uh, like they'll play like a Steve Clifford in defense, right? Where his biggest goal defensively is to not allow the middle. I think you can play that and be fine. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And and so that that gets into, and Markkinen's actually a, a good kind of test case for this. The guy who I've been using is Porzingis. So the idea here is, generally speaking, when a big guy is playing power forward versus center, when they're, when they're physically gifted, they're, you're kind of making a choice between having a size mismatch if they're playing power forward, because a lot of these guys are bigger than power forwards, or a quickness mismatch if they're playing centers. Where One of the places, among many, that I have been wrong about Porzingis is that my feeling going into the draft, going into last season, this season, has been that he would be better off taking advantage of the quickness part of it and playing center offensively. Not even the defensive part. That's a whole different kettle of fish. But he has done a really nice job also because he's a giant and has all these other benefits of taking advantage of the size mismatch, of playing power forwards and just shooting over them. 
What does your feel right now for Bagley in terms of which of those advantages he would be better off using? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I, I think it's probably the quickness mismatch at the five. Like I, I would want to take advantage of just his ridiculous athleticism and force fives into really, really difficult circumstances rebounding the basketball. With Porzingis, it's hard. It, like it's hard to compare anyone to Kristaps because like this year he became such a ridiculous shot creator. He developed like from year two to year three. It's hard for me to remember a big man who went from where he was as a shot creator at the end of year two to where he is now as a shot creator in year three. You know what I mean? Like that's a hard kind of development to expect. I do. And and again, I was trying not to make the comparison to Porzingis in that sense, more of using right. him as a way to illustrate because, right. yeah, I mean, nobody, you don't compare anybody to Porzingis at this point. But the thing is, like, Bagley is 6'11". Like, he's going to be able to take advantage of size mismatches against fours. Sure. Well, and something else that I think that he's done a good job of, and I, I think I noticed this more in the Texas game when they, because Texas had to go small because of foul trouble, is a key element with big men in the modern NBA is being able to attack quickly and decisively against smaller guys, whether that be on a switch or on a help situation, recovery situation. And I thought he did a really nice job against Texas of just getting to the place and exploiting a matchup as soon as he could, because you have to. Yeah, he's very, very decisive. Like sometimes to his detriment, but he's very decisive. And I guess that when you're shooting 60% from the field uh, and turning the ball over on only 11% of your possessions, that's pretty good and pretty uh, valuable, even though there are occasional mistakes. So uh, he's he's just a dude that you draft and say, go do your thing. We're going to play you at the five. We're, I, like if, if it's the choice between playing him with a floor spacer or a rim protector, given the fact that it's just really hard to find that package in a single player, I would rather play him with a floor spacer. I think that he is going to take advantage of matchups with fives so easily just due to the quickness levels, due to the work rate, due to the second jump ability, the third jump ability, the fluidity, uh, the fact that he can go off the bounce and take advantage of matchups that way. I, I would be more focused on playing him with a floor spacer and hoping that the rim protection abilities kind of come out to play. Also, while you don't conceive of a lineup this way, it would more happen just by necessity. Something they could experiment with him, and I actually think NBA teams should do this more often, is going at a model that Boston has fiddled with a little bit with Baines and the Warriors have with Pachulia, which is have a bruising center, but only anticipate playing them early in games when other teams still play bruising centers. Sure. And then you can have Bagley play center the other times. So you have him, you know, pro- he'll probably end up closing games at center. He can, I think he could just annihilate backup centers because all of the guys with the athleticism to guard him that play the five, except for players who just don't have the skills yeah. are going to be starting. Like it's still, as even though there are more centers now than there have been in a while, there just is not enough at the position. There probably never will be just due to supply. To, yeah. to really do that. So Bagley can take advantage of those circumstances as well. Yeah, like if you're Chicago, you start him next to Robin Lopez, take Lopez out after five minutes, play him with Markin and, and like close games with him and Markin. Yeah, that would be the idea. It would be something similar to that. And, th- and there are a fair amount of centers, you know, especially as some of the current guys age out, that mm-hmm. would be very good in that role. That, that And you could even slide some of them and be a little bit more versatile than the way coaches are doing it now. But I think that's the next nut to be cracked in terms of rotational stuff. And both Brad Stevens and Steve Kerr are pretty close to this already, but just seeing it where you, you only use a traditional center in certain spots and you kind of pick and choose where that's going to be. And then, of course, you get in the thing with, about it with regular season. But we could get off on this dynamic for, for a long time in 
instead well, another oh, team ahead. i do want to point out here yep. like say memphis just decides to fall off a cliff like mm-hmm. pairing him with marcus all would probably be the most fun like pairing i think i can imagine yeah that would be that would be pretty fun yeah because especially like there would have been some circumstances if boston hadn't traded the celtics pick and of course that, that sorry traded the nets pick and of course we that that trade is working it was looking good for them right now but if they that would have been a really fun circumstance to just have him in their mix and just the, the idea that they would figure it out. But without that, you know, I'm not salivating and having him on Cleveland because we don't know what Cleveland's going to be. Cleveland is so difficult to even begin to project right now that I don't even know that it's worthwhile. <laughs> Agreed. Before we move on, I want to take a quick moment to tell you about Action Heat, one of the sponsors of Real Jam Radio. And Action Heat's really cool because it's a product that I didn't know existed until it showed up at my doorstep because they wanted us to try it out since it's such an unusual concept. It is heated clothing powered by rechargeable batteries, so it can keep you warm even in the most frigid winter weather. And so they have a a wide variety of different types of clothing. So they have jackets, socks, gloves, hats and even long johns. And so what I had was kind of a base layer and socks, and I've really enjoyed them. It doesn't get as cold here in Northern California, where I am in Northern California, as it does in some other places, but it's nice for like when I take my dog on a walk and there's a little bit of chill in the morning, it works really well. And you can also, if you want to, and I actually tried this out and it was pretty cool, you can use the batteries that are used to power the heating elements in the clothing to charge other things at the same time, including your phone or something else. And it's a it's a standard USB port and it can get up to 135 degrees which is pretty cool. And so they have a lot of different options as I said and they're available in men's and women's sizes starting at just 39.99. And the way that you get there is you go to action-heat.com/realgm. This is a URL. And why you go through there is you get $15 15% off, sorry, 15% off your entire order. So one more time, that is action-heat.com slash RealGM, or you can even use the coupon code RealGM. Might even want to try both just to make sure. And it's 15% savings. It's a really cool product. I think you should definitely check it out. And again, the name is Action Heat. Let's jump to the player who, when you put out the most recent draft board you did, which I think was mid-November, you had number one, and I don't think we're going to have to spend as much time on him, Mr. Luka Doncic. Just has anything changed from in the last month or so on your opinion on him? Not really. He's still just continued to be incredibly productive over in Europe in a way that he he's going to be the most productive teenager in European basketball history. <laughs> that's a ridiculous uh, barrier to crack, but he is that. that. That's simply put what he is. He's shooting like 47% and 35% from three right now, while also averaging like 20 points per game in EuroLeague competition. That is outrageous. That is obscene and unheard of to me that a 19-year-old can do that. Really, he's 18. He's 19 in February. So like he's, this is his 18 year old season, really. Totally, totally ridiculous. We're not, the problem with him is that we're not going to learn what we need to learn about his ability to create separation in NBA circles until after the draft. He's going to continue to just tear up European competition. And that's not to say there aren't really good defenders over in Europe who can cause him issues and have yet to do that in a really substantial way yet. But the NBA is just a different ball game from an athleticism perspective. And uh, I, I don't know that we're going to be able to learn enough about uh, what his weaknesses could potentially be. We don't know if they are yet by the time he's drafted. That's a great point. My only other question, because I'm going to watch a bunch of film on him at some point, is 
do you feel that he could credibly put a little bit more control on his draft location? Like, let's say, depending on who gets what pick, by saying he might not come over right away? Or would that not be seen as a credible threat? I don't know enough about his contract situation offhand to know that. Because like that, you know, generally speaking, you assume a guy wants to go as high of a pick as possible. But especially like we've seen the, the track record with European players of just certain circumstances working, certain senses not working. You know, if maybe the right team gets the second pick and he just says, I'm not going to come over to play for you the first year, maybe that's enough. It's possible. I'm trying to look up the NBA draft like scale for rookies now. It's gone up pretty dramatically. To where I feel like it's going to be pretty difficult for anyone to pass that up right now. You know, like I I think I think that would be more relevant if it ends up being that he's not number one. Because I think if you if you're the number one guy, a team's probably going to just jump on that and going to do it. But like, let's say he's two or three in that range. Maybe if especially if they're close between, I don't know, Bagley or Aiton or whoever else. But it's also hard to think of a team that's like, oh, Bagley and Aiden were or Bagley, Aiden, Doncic, we see them all about the same. Like that that's just really not what this is or not where most teams are, even though at this level of player, you always go best talent available and figure everything else out later. Yeah. Like and the other thing is too, so say he goes number three, or even let's say number four. Number four overall is still gonna make, I think, seventeen million dollars over the course of their first three years. That's a lot. Like that that that's hard to pass up on that money in my opinion. It's, like he makes good money in Europe, I would imagine. I, I don't know his contract details offhand, but there's really only a couple people making the equivalent of that in Europe right now. So not only would he start his rookie scale contract a year earlier than if he stayed overseas for a year, but he would be getting paid substantially more than what I'm assuming he's getting paid right now. And there's no chance realistically that he would wait long enough to get the benefits of not being tied to the rookie scale. So that would be that would funny, be too long. but I, I can't see that. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think that's about, about fair with him. DeAndre Ayton has been a part of a, an Arizona team that has really disappointed. They had a disastrous, it's the battle for Atlantis. I know it has a sponsor now, but I can't remember it. I'm not going to say the it. Bad boy mode. Motors battle for Atlanta. There we go. But from what I've heard, I didn't watch. I was watching the PK80 instead. It doesn't seem like that really hurt his value as a prospect too much. Is that is my understanding correct there? I don't think he hurt himself at all. I mean, he's continued to just be an incredibly valuable player for Arizona at this stage. He's averaging 19 points and 12 rebounds and like a block a game. Like he, he is a double, double machine. He looks like an NBA player out there physically right now. He's seven foot one, 260 pounds. And like, it's not like he's overweight. He looks like a behemoth out there and he moves his feet incredibly well on the perimeter already. He's not overweight at all. He is just a massive human being. Like he looks like DeAndre Jordan already. Like from a physical perspective, it's insane. You know, from a productive production standpoint, it's been great. He's knocked down some threes. That's been great. Shooting free throws well. Doing what he needs to do from that perspective. The defense has been concerning, but it's hard to figure out how much to put the Arizona defensive issues on him versus others. So for people who want to get into the weeds on this, Arizona runs a pack line defense where the entirety of their mission is to cut off penetration into the middle. You'll have like guys help down off the wings at the elbows to cut off penetration and hopefully 
force a kick out. And then the guy at the elbow has to recover to the kick out or they have to X out or they have to do something to, you know, just essentially cut off penetration full stop. That's not happening at all right now. Their defense is just a total dumpster fire on the perimeter to where I think it was 42% of opponent shots at the battle for Atlantis in the half court came at the rim in non post-up settings, which if you look at like past statistical years, that would have been like one of the top one, two or three numbers in the entire country. And all of the other numbers belong to like super high pressure teams like West Virginia and the Citadel, like teams who legit just try and play like 80 possession games, full stop. Arizona doesn't do that at all. So they're inability to contain penetration as well as their desire to play him with fellow seven footer Dushan Ristich has really caused mobility issues and ability inability to contain penetration, which puts a lot of pressure on the rim protection. He's not been up to snuff yet as a rim protector. I do think it's fair to say that he's late rotating. He gets kind of pinned by either bigger players in Isaac Haas's case or smaller players in the case of uh, NC State, where they play like Leonard Freeman on him. So he kind of forces himself out of position and can't recover. When he's there, he's a deterrent. And it's not like he's fouling too much. He's legitimately valuable. It's just that Arizona's perimeter is putting so much pressure on him that it's, I think it's creating more negative plays than it should otherwise. That's some really good context. I appreciate you having that. How, how do you think he's looked offensively? great i mean he's shooting 64 percent from the field he has like a 72 shooting percentage he's shooting some threes in terms of being able to create his own offense he can do it occasionally out of the post but so so much of it is he is just so much bigger than everyone else and can jump so much higher than anyone else that he eats on the offensive glass he you know eats on you know lob plays and he can step out and stretch it his ceiling is legitimately a gravity threat like what DeAndre Jordan is, where he can just get higher than literally everyone else. So he's the biggest lob threat in the NBA, except he can also shoot threes and pop. Like, think about how valuable that is for a second. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the, fir- the first time I saw him. I mean, the physical potential there is crazy. And I've wondered, especially because of the concerns with his motor and everything else like that, about you know, it's like, oh, well, if, when he goes against guys, his his size and physical ability, that'll struggle. There aren't many. There are like five. Like, the, the, you the don't world. have to worry. Yeah, you don't, <laughs> ha- you don't have to worry. It's, it parallels Shaq kind of to that point. And Sha- I mean, Shaq was better at, at getting to his thing and being aggressive. But when you reach a certain threshold, those concerns do matter because smaller guys can still pin you. Smaller guys can still get in some issues. But it is worth consi- it is worth considering and appreciating that there will be very few of those guys. And so the right coach, the right motivation, the right system can can even push it beyond where he is right now. Carl Anthony Towns was huge in college. Like we we can just like he was seven foot six eleven, two hundred and forty pounds. Right? DeAndre looks considerably bigger than Carl Towns on the floor. He is probably an inch and a half to two inches taller. I think he's a little bit longer and he's already like bigger and more built than Towns. That's crazy. (laughs) Um, And then you add with the fact that he can do some of the stuff that Towns does. I don't think he's as natural a passer as what Towns was in college. The general skill level is probably just a little bit lower than what Towns was. But when you're that big, it just doesn't matter. He does need to And and that's comparing him to Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony Towns is on the short list of the most talented big men to come into the NBA in the last decade. Yeah. So, like, that's where I get to with Aiton, to where, like, I think in terms of ceiling, 
his ceiling is higher than anyone else's in this draft. I, I don't really have a problem saying that at this stage. He, he is just so much bigger and so much stronger and so much more fluid. Like you watch him move his feet on the perimeter defensively. Like he can tan, like he's not going to be like cutting off point guards necessarily, like the quickest point guards, but you can leave him out on an island against like twos and not get murdered. Like it, he's not going to do it great, but like for a guy that's seven foot one, 260 pounds, you can leave him out on an island against twos. That's ridiculous. Like you can kind of let him hard hedge and he'll recover back because of his length and everything that he does. It's it's crazy to me. He is Joel Embiid without the defense right now. Like Joel had the natural shot blocking ability from a young age at Kansas. He had the natural footwork where he could rotate over and just be a ridiculous rim protector immediately. He, he's Embiid without that right now to me. And yeah, that's probably the most valuable part of Joel Embiid's game right now. But even without that, Joel Embiid would still be considered one of the best young players in the NBA. So th- that's kind of where I'm at with Aiton. Like his ceiling is higher than I think anyone else's in this draft. I would agree with that. And there are concerns as to how likely he is to reach even like his 90% outcome just because right. of the motor stuff. But that does still matter because what he could be is absolutely incredible. I'll let you choose for this. Do you want to talk about Bomber or do you want to talk about Porter? Let's talk about Porter just because it'll be relatively quick. So Michael Porter is now out for the year. He is having back surgery. He is having a microdiscectomy where it's essentially like he has some sort of bulging disc in his back and they have to remove something that is causing issues for his nerves. So like for people who remember the initial injury of Michael Porter and like what it was diagnosed as, it was first, it was like a hip injury and then it was a leg injury. And then it was just announced that he was having back surgery. I think that's why it presented the way that it did early on with like kind of differing ailments. You know, it was kind of just impinging upon his nerves a little bit. So he's having this surgery and he's expected to have a full recovery. It's still worth pointing out though, that according to Jeff Stotts from In Street Clothes, one of, I would say maybe he is the preeminent injury analytics expert, right? At least of public people. Yeah. So- According to him, three out of every four players who have disc surgery on their back have a reoccurrence at some point. The factors that he has in his favor are that he is younger and the surgery is a couple of you know lumbar points higher than where the typical microdiscectomy occurs. So there are points in his favor, but there's also a pretty negative point there where 75% chance of recurrence is a little bit scary, I think, for NBA teams. He also now gets the Josh Jackson type power to wield a little bit yeah. more control over his outcomes because this is largely going to be a medical records issue. And so if he wants to do that, he certainly he certainly can. And I mean, when you have a back issue like this, it's the type of thing that you really do need to see records on. And also, we'll we'll see how active he wants to be in workouts. And now he's kind of at the mercy of how these other guys look, you know. So so I would say, and I think that's actually a good way to start talking about Bamba because to me, Bagley, you know, Bagley and Doncic in particular have basically said, okay, you know, like we've we've done well, like we've pushed beyond some of the basically they've turned some of the some of the question marks into positive answers. Yeah, and Aiton to a point has done that. The, he's done less of that just because of the system and everything else like that. Bomb to me has certainly not been awful in any in any way shape or form oh no but 
he is concerning to me in the way that his offense was always going to be, it was always more of a ceiling play with him than expected value. Like it was like, oh, he could be an intriguing offensive player. And what I think we're seeing at Texas is that that could still be true, but it's a long way off. Yeah. So he's 6'11 with that seven foot nine wingspan. Like he's just a physical freak. The issues that I'm having with him are mostly that he doesn't bring it on every possession. And if you're going to be that guy who is a hyper elite defender, as well as a rim runner, rim protector five, you need to like be high, high effort. I think like you need to be really, really, you know, bringing it every time down the floor. With Bamba, he's not a good screen setter just because he doesn't ever make contact, really. He likes to float a little bit to get his perimeter shot. He's more of a pop weapon because of that now. He's so skinny throughout his lower half that he struggles to establish position both for offensive rebounding and for you know defending in the, pl- in the post despite his length. Where you see him make his impact is still defensively protecting the rim and the fact that he's a very mobile defender and can kind of uh, really be effective in hedge scenarios because of his length and he can be uh, a guy who can kind of slide and do some stuff a little bit. So like I still have Muhammad Bamba as like a top eight prospect in this class. Like he's still ridiculous and still unbelievable. His ceiling is still insane because if he continues to fill out his lower half and develops a little bit more explosiveness and continues to, you know, develop that sense, or maybe he's just like college basketball is stupid. Why am I not getting paid? I'm just going to kind of take it easy. His ceiling is very, very high. Like he can be, it's rare where you can say a player can be in like a legit defensive player of the year candidate as a draft pick. Yeah, he can do that. Like very simple. Absolutely. Like his, his length and his physical tools are there. He just needs to kind of show it, and he hasn't shown it yet, and that would give me pause, especially when compared to the other elite-level prospects in this class. Two days ago on Dunked On, of course, there'll be more than that when this airs, we were asked, we did a little mailbag, and we one question we asked was, what's something that players can do that is underappreciated or underrepresented in stats? And, and what I answered, my number one is the ability to deter shots rather than block shots. And... What Bamba is doing right now is similar to what Joel Embiid is doing at the professional level, which is that he's deterring a ton of shots and he's also blocking a ton of shots. So he is also, we should mention, averaging a steal a game, which is which is good for a guy his size. That's nice. You know, most guys don't average more than that, realistically. Yeah, he has four blocks or more in all but one game that he's played. And yeah, it's not against those aren't the greatest competition. The one game he didn't was against Duke when he had two. He altered a ton of shots in that game, too. Yeah, but. That's insane. Like a guy has four or five blocks in five of uh, five of his six games. It's unbelievable. It doesn't even really matter the opponent you're playing against. And he eats defensive rebounds too. He's Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I think he's leading the Big 12 currently in defensive rebounding percentage, 28.5. So like it's <laughs> he's not a bad player by any stretch of the imagination. I do not mean to say that when I say I'm a little bit worried about him. I'm just a little bit worried about him. I'm not a lot worried about him. Like he's still his ceiling again is still like legit all-star level NBA talent who can alter games defensively in ways that very few players, even on the NBA level can. It's just a little bit worrisome to me, just a little bit uh, in terms of effort. So like, for instance, like right now, I would probably take both Jaron Jackson and Colin Sexton over. That has to do mostly with the fact that I think their offensive games are a little bit more translatable 
And I think I trust their mentalities a little bit more. But if Bamba kind of sits down and decides, I want to be the best defensive center in the NBA and I'm going to do whatever it takes to do that, he will be that guy probably. Like he genuinely will be that guy. And he can also, I don't think he's ever going to be, you know, built, but I think it's going to be easier for him to put weight on his frame than it was for like a guy like Thon, where Thon is just, he, I, I thought of his frame as just being a little bit smaller. And so Bamba will probably have to make that choice. We talked about this with Bagley about what kind of what level of bulk versus quickness he wants to have. But that's why you have an NBA team and their their professional development and all that. And I, I think that he has the capability of, you know, he's not going to be all things to all people because even defensively, because very few people ever are. But I think he can reach a really healthy point. Totally agree. 100% agree. This isn't, again, like I have taken Bamba like just out of that top tier. That top tier would be number one draft picks in a lot of classes. Just because he's not there doesn't mean I don't like him as a prospect. I really like him as a prospect. Uh, I think he would be an excellent top five pick in a lot of different drafts. Just a little bit worried. Just a little bit worried. That's all I'm saying. Well, and having him with Jaron Jackson is appropriate because Jackson doesn't have the same defensive ceiling. I think Jaron Jackson could be a wonderful defensive player, but you see the you see how he can contribute to a successful NBA team on both ends of the floor. It will take him some time, just like it will for any any young big man. But the path to like solid starter level for Jaron Jackson to me is pretty straightforward. Oh, for sure. He is a guy who can shoot threes, who can move really, really well on the perimeter, and who has a seven foot four wingspan at six foot eleven. He is And plays with energy too. Yeah. Like he is the guy that we talk about, you know, who we want to pair with Marvin Bagley. That is the exact prototype of the person you want to pair with him. Uh those guys are who can do all three of those factors are among the most rare in the entire NBA. Like Miles Turner can't really guard on the perimeter. Kristaps can't really guard on the perimeter yet. Serge Ibaka could do that during his time in Oklahoma City. Wasn't like incredible at it, but was pretty good at it. Jaron Jackson can do all three of those things. I think maybe he's like slightly lower on the rim protection side, but the ability to potentially get a guy who can do all three of those things and play like a solid role for you with the potential given his growth process over the last two years as a prospect to do much, much more than that. It's invaluable, I think. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. want to tell you a little bit about DraftKings. Been thrilled to have them as a sponsor on the show. And DraftKings is a great way of both testing your knowledge and showing some faith in that and also making certain days of games more interesting. You can do a lot of different formats of contests in basketball or for those of you who like football and football or other sports. I've really enjoyed both of those with DraftKings. And so you can choose a lot of different kinds of contests. One thing that was the most interesting to me because I have been a longtime player of more year-long fantasy, but daily fantasy is something that has been new to me in 2017, is that you can do beginner and casual contests where you play against people who aren't the the hardened professionals and semi-professionals that are are part of this and that's great and they're a wonderful a wonderful part of the daily fantasy world but for those of us who are new to this you can go to those contests and so you have a wide variety of things and it works by the salary cap system rather than by a, some sort of draft. And so the benefit for that is that if there's a player you really want, you think 
LeBron James is going to have a, a big night. And in a, a yearly fantasy league, if you don't have a high enough pick, you're not going to get him. But in daily fantasy, if you want somebody, you can make sure that they're on your team. So it's a great way of checking it out. There are huge cash prizes and, of course, bragging rights. And so how you check it out is you go to DraftKings.com and then use the promo code. There's a promo code CLNS, CLNS, and you will get the chance to play um, for a share of a big prize if you if you enter that. So again, it's DraftKings.com, and then the promo code is CLNS. And try out your lineups. Lots of different options there. You can find something you really like. I am an advocate, as I've said, for beginner and casual contests. And if you use that CLNS promo code, it'll tell you, tell them that you came from us. So definitely check it out. Again, that's DraftKings and the CLNS promo code. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Let's talk Colin Sexton. I mean, the the centerpiece of what he has done so far is the ridiculousness of that. I think it was 13 minutes when they were playing five on three and actually engineered a comeback, which ended up being unsuccessful. But that must have been a fever dream for Sexton because it's everything he ever wanted. I love Colin Sexton. By far, my favorite prospect in this class. I'm going to be very, you know, and this comes without, you know, having done background research and everything. And, you know, who knows? With that stuff, uh, you know, not just for Sexton, but for everyone. But that dude is my favorite guy to watch in this class by far. And it is due to the way that he he has a flair for the moment. He wants the ball in his hands at every point. He wants to destroy other teams. He wants to absolutely end them. And it's incredible to watch. Like, for instance, they played UT Arlington, uh, who's a really, really good mid-major. And it was a three-point game with 50 seconds left. And he clears out everyone, clears them out. You know, Eric Neal and him had been kind of like going back and forth all game. Eric Neal's undersized point guard for UT Arlington. He'll play pro for 10 years overseas, probably, uh, leading the country in assists right now. Really, really good player. He looks at Eric Neal, tells him exactly where he's going. He points to the rim, nods, says, let's go, let's go drives right by him like it's nothing because he has that little hang dribble that's impossible to time for opposing defensive point guards at the point of attack. Drives right by him, finishes through contact and one, basically ends the game until UT Arlington makes a miraculous comeback because Herbert Jones has a ridiculously terrible five-second violation under the UT Arlington basket. So UT Arlington gets a second chance to tie this game or win this game. And Neil tries to isolate on Colin Sexton and Colin Sexton's like, this is me and you. I'm going to take this defensive assignment on, cuts him off and ends the game. Like did not allow even a remotely viable shot in the Minnesota game where it's three on five. He goes for 19 points in 10 minutes uh, while the game is being played. Three Alabama players versus five Minnesota players, which, by the way, happened in large part because he and Nate Mason started talking shit to each other the whole time. It's everything I want in a basketball player. He's a perfect uh, basketball player to me. I need to watch a lot more of him to figure it out. But but what I enjoy about Sexton beyond his competitiveness is that I see in him a will to get better because guys who are as fiercely competitive as he is get really pissed off when they're insufficient somewhere. And, you know, there's guys who take that the wrong way and who can who can turn it into some some self-defeating directions. And Sexton is certainly an imperfect player at this point in time. I, I don't trust his jump shot all the way yet, especially from three. But I do like it. I, I, I need to watch more of him. But yeah, I mean, 
to to be the to be the number one point guard in this class at, as of right now, even with the concerns he has, is is impressive. And and he could certainly, you know, he's so he's probably in that. You know, it's hard with this class whether it's to tier two or tier three, just with how you see those other top guys. But that's a good place for him right now. Yeah, like he he is. He's not perfect. There are still questions about his ability to make plays for others. Although, you know, he he did that at Hoop Summit last year. Like he was fine as a playmaker whenever he was asked to do it. He definitely sides more toward wanting to create for himself. His jump shot has been really good so far, but it's still a question, I think, long term. Like it's not the most fluid looking or prettiest looking jump shot. It's just little stuff. Little stuff comes up. You know what I mean? Where you wonder and you wonder if the edge that he plays with all the time and that edge that he plays on all the time could end up being more negative than positive sometimes. Like he's already now gotten into quite a few incidents this year. Little stuff like that is going to pop up on the fringes, but ultimately. Right. And, and those things are, those things are tolerated a lot more of the best of the best than they are of anybody even remotely less than that. Like once you, once you start to get below, then that becomes like the problem player type stuff. Like you think about, what Chris Paul couldn't get away with if he were anyone other than Chris Paul and the parts that he doesn't get away with, even though he is Chris Paul. Yeah, no, 100% right, I think. 100% right on that. Before we get on to kind of a more broad scope thing, the other guy that I want to talk about in a little bit more depth because you wrote a really good piece on him for The Athletic is Trey Young. Young was somebody who I was loosely familiar with because he was a, f- a five-star prospect, which is, yeah. from, it's, correct me if I'm wrong, but he was a five-star prospect. But what has been fun, he's a freshman at Oklahoma, is that he's showing more than what made him a five-star prospect. And while I'm still a little bit skeptical that it makes him like an amazing NBA player, he has been incredibly fun to watch this year. And I think it does speak to him having more pro potential than the people who knew him better than I did thought at the time. Yeah, I mean, through his first six or seven games or whatever, he's averaging like 29 and nine. He's ridiculous. And you watch like a lot of the stuff that he does. So much of it is because he has an insanely tight handle, really, really good change of pace, really, really good change of direction, unbelievable shooter. Like there are points where he'll just pull up. Like there was one play at the PK-80 where this dude pulled up from the edge of the PK-80 midcourt sign and was just like, yeah, I can do that. I ball. Like, what do you want me to say? The fact that he does that stuff is just ridiculous. And I think it shores up a lot of the concerns about his athleticism on the offensive end, right? The fact that he is not just shifty and can really pass it in transition and can create plays in the half court. The fact that he can shoot the ball really, really opens up the rest of the floor for him. And he's always been known as a shooter like that. That's not something you have to worry about. Like he is, he has a pretty jump shot and he can knock down shots from 35 feet. Now, are there small concerns? Yeah. Like he, his jump shot has a low release point and it's kind of a little bit far out in front of his face. So you can see a circumstance where it's easier for NBA defenders with length to close out on him and cause some issues with accuracy. Like he's, he's not like, I don't think he's Steph Curry. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's not going to be like a difference making game changer, but like one thing that I always talk about is the ability to come in and be at the worst, a backup point guard, because we talk about the strength of the point guard position in the NBA. We always talk about it from the perspective of the elite level players. Like there's probably a 17 point guard class that if they made an all-star game in any given season, we wouldn't be surprised. Would you agree with that? Like 17 different guys, something like that? That might be a lot, but it's a ton. It's a lot. Surprising amount. But you look down at 
team's backup point guards. I mean, like Aaron Brooks is still in the league. <laughs> I mean, Aaron Brooks has carved out a great career for himself, and it's a credit to him to doing that. But the backup point guard position is not a strong – the replacement level to be a backup point guard is very, very low. It's not quite as low as the wing position, but it's pretty low. So just the ability to come in and create elite level offense like he can as both a shooter and a scorer, to me, that's worth a late first round pick. Like you can get 20 minutes a game and that's at the lowest end, I think. Like if you can say, hey, Trey, go out, create offense for us for 15 to 20 minutes a night, that's worth a first round pick to me. Also, one of the advantages that coaches are getting better at executing, and Lillard's a good example of this, of course, Steph Curry is too, is... If you can shoot a pull-up reliably coming, basically coming off a screen, yep. it is, the only way that you can, re, if you are good enough at shooting it, the only way to counteract that really is a switch yep. or theoretically a trap. And so if you, you if you're it. good enough yeah. to force that, if you're good enough to force that, it opens up so many other things. Yeah. And there is a concern with, with Young that his release point is low and he's not the biggest dude. So that can actually matter even more. It's, you know, a low release is a smaller concern on a guy who's 6'11 than a guy who's 6'2. But here, here is what I will say about Trey Young. Like I, I talked to, I think it might have been Audie Joseph yesterday offline. Uh, Audie, the great editor over at CBS who used to work at USA Today and one of my favorite people in the industry. And and edited us at the Sporting News. Edited us at the Sporting News as well. Hired me at Sporting News, actually. I was talking to him yesterday and he brought up like, yeah, like I remember both of us were super high on Trey Burke, though. And I was like, yeah, th- I, I totally do buy that as a comp. But the big difference here is Trey Young is like two to three inches bigger or three to four inches, I'm sorry, bigger than Trey Burke is. You know what I mean? Like he's not a small point guard. He's just six foot two with a six four wingspan, which is like slightly below average. He's not like a midget point guard. You know what I mean? I do. And and I also think, you know, with with more time and everything with point guard defense, as long as you're not an absolute sieve, then that's a, th- a you know, that's a threshold. And then there are a couple other thresholds. And so, you know, if you can get to that first or second yeah. level, then you can survive it. I, I will say right now, he's pretty much a defensive sieve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah like he's going he's gonna to need to get better to get to that first level. But yeah. I, I think just about every NBA player other than maybe current Milos Teodosic oh, and current Jose Calderon <laughs> can get to that level with effort and coaching and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, he, he's just really bad defensively now, but that's fine. The other real concern though is like he has a reputation for just like dominating the ball in a yeah, that's true. problematic manner. So like, yeah, like John Calipari went on Jim Harbaugh's podcast and was like, a kid, his father told me he wanted the kid to shoot every ball. And, you know, we just don't do that at Kentucky. And, you know, he went to a school and he had 40 last night. And he said that like on a recording on Monday for a Tuesday podcast, right after Trey Young dropped 43 against Oregon. And Young was one of Kentucky's major point guard targets throughout the course of the 2017 recruiting cycle. So like, this is not like a new thing. Like I've heard through the grapevine that like Kentucky recruits didn't really want to play with them, for instance, because they thought he would do it regardless of uh, what Cal told him. So like, I do think he like he's averaging like nine assists a game and that's great. And he has been pretty good with sharing the basketball, but he does like to pound it. 
Like he'll pound the ball a good amount. Yeah, and and that's another reason why he might end up eventually being a backup, just because that's more tolerable. Yeah. You know, the there's a, the, beyond the athleticism concerns. There's a reason why Lou Williams' ball works better as a second team thing than a first team thing, both in terms of execution, but also in terms of let's call it team happiness. Exactly. Yeah, that's hundred percent right. We can go a little bit more broad scope here with the the remainder of the show. Sure. And uh, so so I think just with who has really helped themselves so far in this time period. And then if there's anybody who you think has really hurt themselves. Who I think has helped themselves. Outside of those top guys, like, I don't know that a ton of guys have really, like, tangibly changed their stop. Zanon Zanon Musa uh, over in the Adriatic League. uh, Like, he's from Bosnia. He plays for, uh, I believe, Sedativa. Sedevita, I'm sorry. He's been really good. Like, really, really good. He's averaging, like, 20 points a game right now. Again, 19 years old. That's really hard to do over there. The the uh, He's assuaging concerns just due to productivity about the athleticism, the hunched posture, the all of the random issues that he has with his game, not being like a hyper athlete. But he's helped himself. I think Tyus Battles helped himself. Uh, a guy that's really helped himself, in my opinion, some guys had him higher than I did coming into the year, but I was a little bit lower. Mikhail Bridges at Villanova, I think is like, built himself up to being a potential lottery pick three and D guys still just knocking down threes at a ridiculous level. Uh, still just defending and being six, seven with a seven, two wingspan, really, really good basketball player, really, uh, really effective in the ways he's been asked to create offense a little bit more this year. Like I said, I think he's averaging like 18 points a game after averaging nine last year, no real drop off in efficiency, but it's also like he's, doing a lot of the same stuff, just kind of adding a little bit in terms of creativity. I had him at 24, 25, something like that coming into the year. I would probably have him at like 10, 11, 12 now, something like that. I'm trying to think of some other guys who I think. Well, of- so while, while you think about it, one idea that I wanted to kind of throw out there is, well, it, it shouldn't have taken this to make it happen. I wonder whether the OG and Anobi process is going to change the way some front offices think about wings because OG was a really talented guy. And part of the reason he fell in the draft was because of injuries. But what he's showing is just getting a wing who can play is so valuable for your team. You know, like think about think about all the guys that got taken above him who are marginalized, not necessarily because they're young and they're raw, though in certain certain cases like Zach Collins, that is absolutely true. Like they could end up being very good players. But nobody has wings. So if you have a guy who can actually get on the floor and can actually play, you're going to need that guy. Every single team could use more wings. Yeah, it's why I think I'm a little bit higher generally on guys like like Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Jacob Evans and Tyus Battle. Like those are all guys that I have. And Shake Milton. Like those are all guys that I have like in my top 25 right now. And I feel like a lot of people don't really have that yet. It's just, you have to find wings. You have to find them. Like Wendell Carter, I think, like you look at his numbers and they've been fine, but like there, there have been circumstances now where both against Indiana and against Florida, where he was put out into space and really struggled. And I'm, I'm terrified by that now. Like I think five, 10 years ago, he would have a case to go in the top five, but now like I, I don't know what to do with him. He's so skilled. He's got great hands. He can shoot the basketball and, you know, he can do a lot of stuff, but I just don't know 
what to do with him defensively because he struggles to protect the rim and he doesn't really move all that well. Yeah, it, it's a it's a concern with him. And I, I liked Wendell a lot at the Hoop Summit. I think that there is a, a way for him to move to move forward and to be a productive player, to be a solid starter and everything like that. But you're right that he needs to have that definitive place where his bread is buttered, at least early on, because like we're seeing this all over the league. Like the, the, There are two things that are, are good to have if you want to actually get playing time and be a value. One is a clear strength, like a reason for a coach to be like, oh, this guy's good. And the second is the fewest like appalling weaknesses that you can. And then, you know, young guys, especially young bigs are always going to have those. And so with Wendell, the, the possibilities are certainly there. But I think we're seeing the difference in the possession by possession impact with a guy like Jaron Jackson or much less Muhammad Bamba than than we are with Carter defensively, even though they're playing that craptastic in terms of draft evaluation two three zone. Yeah, a guy that's hurt himself, I think, is Justin Jackson at Maryland. I, I was not as high on him like. Some people had him as like a lottery pick and some people then the ringer, like say they would put him at like fourth, like at one point, like someone at the ringer said they'd have him like fourth on their board. I am unfamiliar, but I trust your memory of it infinitely better than my own. Yeah. Like he he's not shooting well right now. So like that's part of it. But when he's not shooting well, he's just not effective offensively at all. He's not explosive enough to really make an impact as a rim runner or as a cutter. He is not a good enough passer to create plays for others attacking closeouts or uh, now that teams don't even really have to close out on him. He's just not a good enough playmaker to really see stuff around the court. The six, seven with a seven, three wingspan stuff is great. And he's a solid defender, but I, I don't know what to do with them if he can't play offense at all. And he's not like a hyper elite defender, you know? So he, he's a guy I would probably have like, 30 35 right now as opposed to like 25 yeah i haven't watched much of him yet so i'll I'll definitely say it's fair and then another thing just in terms of the i would say for me that so far none of those kind of like next tier down bigs even below wendell carter have shown something to make me think that they should be higher than that like i watched a little bit of nick richards at kentucky he's fine he's not not a bad player in any way but he like i would love to see one or two of those guys and it's not gonna be mitchell robinson because of his crazy circumstance yeah i would love to see one or two of those guys at least jump one level it'd be great if they jump two but but that's probably unrealistic and we haven't seen that yet and like even if you're like, looking like a backup center you know that's that's to me a late first round pick at best like to to that point like robert williams right now at texas a&m i don't know that he's shown anything new like i, I don't think he's really developed beyond the point of where he was last year he, that's fine like he's still a really really good basketball player and texas a&m's really really good i think he's like a mid first rounder like i think he's like a top 20 pick and some people like thought oh yeah he could be in the mix for number one this year i, I don't think he's that like i think he is just like a borderline starter in the nba and that's great but it's just not not super exciting to me either. Chemezi Matu was interesting. He's now shooting threes. Like that's a significant impact. Like if he can legit knock down threes in as a trailer in transition or, you know, coming off of pick and pops, that's really, really valuable. But I, I don't know, man, like it's, it's still so early that I try not to be overreactive to with a lot of this stuff. I, I, I had Tyus battle like in the bottom third of my first round. He's been really good, but I wouldn't move him up or down right now, really. DeAnthony Melton hasn't played yet. Not, I'm not going to move DeAnthony Melton because he hasn't played yet. You know, it's just, I'm just kind of taking time and waiting for this thing to roll out. But, you know, I'm okay moving stuff on the margins, I guess. 
Yeah, I would say that's fair. And it's going to be a long process this year. And I, I think I was thinking about this as, as you were kind of talking about some of the perimeter players. Ooh, and can I, can I actually give one name real quick, though? Of course. While you're talking about Jay, uh, perimeter players. Jalen Hudson at Florida has been really good. He was a guy that at Virginia Tech, I kind of always talked about on the periphery, like, I like this guy. He's 6'6". He can create, you know, kind of kind of interesting, you know, needs to shoot it off the dribble a little bit more as a sophomore. He became a catch and shoot guy. He is awesome at Florida right now. Like he can shoot off the bounce. He can, he's just a shot maker through and through. He has a fluid jump shot now. I think that that guy is like a late first round pick, maybe. Awesome. I, I need to watch more Florida. That that game that I was talking about with Bagley that I haven't watched yet is Duke, Florida. So I, I'll be excited to see him in that. But so the point that I was getting at is it looks to me at this point, like this draft more so than any I can remember recently is going to have a lot of eye of the beholder picks. And what I mean by that is yeah. players that are all at about the same level that will have dramatically different values to different teams based on how they've scout how they've scouted them and how that player works within what their vision is. And that can go one of two ways. If teams see those guys closely, then there can be, you know, it'll be it'll be a more stable draft. But if we have different opinions or like if if teams have different opinions more accurately, that can lead to a very wild draft night because they will be moving around each other to try to get the guys they want. Yeah, no, I 100% agree with that. It's a year that I've kind of been saying for a while, it's not quite as deep as what you would anticipate, given the fact that the draft at the top is so strong. There are some interesting players, but a lot of the players near like the end of the first round or in the middle of the first round right now are very much projects, right? Like even Troy Brown to an extent, where like, hey, this guy is 6'7 with a 6'11 wingspan and has ridiculously great feel for the game and all this stuff. Like he's still kind of a project because he's very, very young and he can't really shoot it yet. Like I, I don't know exactly what you do with that. And he's not like a crazy athlete. So you need to kind of convince, need to figure out how to utilize his skill set best. And like Diallo is a huge project. Oh, yeah. I can talk. Hamadou Diallo could be... He could be whatever you want him to be, basically. Except for a shooter. So maybe one maybe one day he is a shooter. I don't know. Like he has a yeah, lot of the be. same stuff that Jalen Brown had. You know what I mean? Where like it's a little bit hitchy at the top, but if he gets with a and, and like that throws off his rhythm, but if he gets with a good shooting coach who can kind of fix that, he's a freak. Like if he can shoot the basketball, he is unbelievable. Yeah, it's certainly true. And he's just a crazy athlete. I, I will remember the game he played at the uh, Adidas Nations against Zion Williamson for the rest of my life because those two guys at 17, I think Zion was 16 then yeah. going at it. You're just sitting there. It, it looked like the future. Like that's, uh, I thought the same thing the first time I saw eight and I'm just like, wait, this is a high school kid who looks like an NBA player. Like those, there are certain moments and certain guys. And that doesn't mean he's either of those guys is going to be a good NBA player or a great NBA player. But when you, when you see that, like it's a good reminder. I think that game was a reminder of what a lot of us, including you and I have talked about of what you're looking for in summer league is the guys that pop yeah. just at, at a basic level and you're sitting there going oh my god like this is what it could be and you all i always give those guys more leeway because it's so hard to find you know what the crazy thing about that zion williamson game was i think he was 15 I, he might have been he's two years younger I, than diallo god <laughs> i mean 
And Zion, I mean, we're still a little ways away from him as an NBA player. And when he when he actually gets to college, he hasn't announced yet, right? No, he, he is genuinely the most interesting NBA draft prospect in the history of the NBA draft to me. I, I am not exaggerating that. Like you can make. Well, the I case mean, think that- about think about how divisive Julius Randle was. And now imagine if Julius Randle was one of the best athletes in high school in the last decade, decade plus. Yeah, no, it's he is he is six seven, two hundred and seventy pounds, and can he, he is a defensive end, except who can throw down three sixty reverse dunks. Yeah, he's a defensive end that could block field goals just by jumping. Yeah, he's insane. He's insane. <laughs> he's insane. Um, so there, there, there are three other guys I wanted to talk briefly about with you. Okay. I hope that two of them, one of them, but go ahead. Maybe, maybe not because they're just players that I think listeners of this podcast who are more, I always think of it as more NBA people than college, even though these guys all go to major schools right. brought up and that's the Miami guards. So you have yeah. Bruce Brown and Lonnie Walker because it's so weird. First of all, we talked about how there are no wings in the league and, and you know, I, I think you can make an argument that they're, I think they're probably, you would know better, but they're both twos at this point. But it's so weird to have two lottery caliber wings on the same college team. It's very strange. I mean, Jim Laranega swears that Bruce Brown's going to be an NBA point guard. I'm skeptical on that. Like, I think he's a combo more than anything. I will say that Bruce Brown is another one of those kids that's like hyper mature. Um, Lonnie Walker, also very, very mature kid. Very intelligent kids so like those guys do tend to grow pretty quickly bruce brown's a year older than what his class is like he's gonna be 21 before he plays an nba game even if he and that's if he declares this year so like you would think that that might limit his ceiling a little bit but we'll see he's been impressive in many ways like he's been his floor game is outstanding it's the scoring and the you know ability to create that i still worry about a little bit just just a small amount I think he profiles best though as like maybe like a Patrick Beverly type combo guard who is super long, super athletic. He's just funky. He's hard to kind of place in the NBA right now due to his skill set. But he's a guy that you want on your team because he makes stuff happen kind of. If you can find someone who can shoot next to him at the one and three though, I think he can be really, really valuable. Lonnie Walker though, on the other hand, is really tough right now. Like nothing has changed for Lonnie as a prospect just because his – he tore his meniscus this summer and is still coming back from it. Like he's coming off the bench behind like Dejan Vasiljevic right now, like the Australian shooter guy who's like kind of a not shooter. I think it's just because they're bringing him along slowly and it's kind of hard to get a great gauge on what he is right now and where he is. You see the flashes with him, like cl- attacking closeouts and spot up situations and being able to score in a hurry sometimes. But it, it seems pretty clear that like athletically, he's not quite back yet yeah we might just have to wait with walker for a little while and that's totally fine i mean that that's a a part of this especially when a guy is coming back from from meniscus issue you want to give them the time to evaluate them at 100 percent. and it's again it ties to the idea of anchoring you know that you don't want to you don't want to build an opinion on something that is an inaccurate part of the sample right the last guy i wanted to ask you about i believe if memory serves he's the youngest of the like lottery guys by a little bit and that's Kevin Knox. Yep, this of is the Kentucky. guy I wanted to talk about. I'm really glad you brought him up. Knox, I mean, I think back to to when I, I've seen him a couple of times in person and watched him a couple of times on film. I vacillate more than with almost any other high-level prospect with him of being like, oh, I, I'm a believer in this guy too. Really? Him? Like that, that, <laughs> that is usually not the way it ever happens for me, no. but I also haven't watched a ton of him at Kentucky yet. So I wanted to touch base with you. 
Yeah, I can totally buy that. <laughs> he is very inconsistent right now, or at least as inconsistent as a guy who is averaging 16 points a game on like an above average true shooting percentage can be. Kevin Knox is a six foot eight, six foot nine, seven foot wingspan, 220 pound, like prototypical stretch four in today's NBA. And the jump shot, he's shooting 35% from three. I think he's going to be a shooter. Like I look at the mechanics. I look at how fluid he is coming off of screens, shooting on the move. I think that dude's going to be a shooter in the NBA. Like as soon as he gets to a situation where he can just run off screens constantly and practice running as hard as he can into a jump shot and exploding upward. I think that dude's going to shoot the hell out of the ball in the NBA. You add that with the athleticism. He he is someone who I think his athleticism might get a little bit overrated because I don't think he's like, I don't think he's super shifty from what I've seen so far. He It looks like he has like not quite as stiff of hips as Harrison Barnes, but it looks like he has a little bit of that going on. But if, if he can become the shooter that I think his jump shot portends with just the rhythm that he has and the fluidity that he has, how good it looks coming out of his hand. I think he has a ceiling that is maybe not as high as the highest guys in this class, like not in the top tier guys. But I think after that, it's hard to find guys that have a higher ceiling than him. I think from what I know now that Knox has the highest gap between ceiling and floor of anybody, at least in last year's class that I knew well. And this year, I, I the only guy that gives me pause is Aiden because Aiden's ceiling is so right. ludicrously high that if he, you know, if he just doesn't apply himself, that that's just, that might be. But, you know, that that's intriguing with Knox, the fact that he could do it. And also you talked about, you know, the, the issues with his hips and other things like that. And I've seen, I've seen some of that too is the idea that if he's playing the four, a lot of that stuff matters a little bit less. It matters more in the modern NBA than it did before because you're still going to deal with guys on switches and things like that. But I think he can parlay some of that into into advantages. But you're right that sometimes there are elements of athleticism that are overrated and elements of athleticism that are underrated. Like I think in certain circumstances, especially if you're not a rebounder, straight vertical is overrated Yeah, because it's not something that applies. And lateral quickness is underrated. Yep. And I would say, broadly speaking, it's not athleticism, but effort is underrated. But not and so Knox is concerning in that way because he's good at the things that get overrated and bad at the things that are underrated. But if he's a four, then some of that stuff works out. That said, we just talked at length about how valuable threes are. And if he can do that, it just makes him so much more important and so much more useful in the league. Yeah, like I'm not I'm not unconvinced that his ceiling can't be like Paul George who can like actually play some threes. George is a little bit shiftier than what Knox is. I think he's, I don't think he has it with the ball in his hands. I think that's the part of Paul George that, that Knox doesn't have. Paul George didn't have that though. when he was this young either. That's true. And, and like Knox, Yeah. Cause I didn't, he played two years of Fresno. Is that right? Yeah. And like Knox is fluid enough with the ball in his hands to where I think he could develop it. The, the more I watch Kevin Knox, the more I kind of buy into it because I, I was on your side of it. Like, when I just kind of watched him in spurts in high school where I was like, you know, I get it. I get it. And then like the first two games at Kentucky, I was like, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. The shot looks projectable, but we'll see. But the more I watch him, I don't know why, but the more comfortable I get with him having just an insanely high seal and like actually having a realistic chance to reach it. I, other than the jump shot, there's not really much else to base that on. But I think a lot of it does come from the fact that 
I buy the projectable jump shot enough to where I would like, I think I would have him ahead of miles bridges right now. Wow. And wow. it's mostly due to ceiling. Like I, I feel confident with what miles bridges is going to be in the NBA. He, he's going to be a, like, I think he's going to be a starter. I think he's going to be really valuable. I think he's going to, I think that miles bridges is going to cover up a lot of holes for NBA teams, right? He's going to be athletic. He's going to allow you to play small. He's going to allow you to play big by being able to play the three. His jump shot looks a little bit better this year. There's a lot to like about Miles Bridges, and I am still very high on Miles Bridges. I just think that the ceiling for Knox is a lot higher, and that's why I'm a little bit, why why I've kind of gotten there with him. It's totally due to me thinking that the jump shot is as projectable as I think it is, but he seems like one of those players where if the jump shot comes along and once you hit that like open floor spacing of the NBA, that the rest of his game could come along really quick. Remember like Kawhi Leonard, and I'm not comparing Kevin Knox to Kawhi Leonard at all. When Kawhi's jump shot came along, it allowed him to get reps developing the rest of his game, creating shots off of closeouts and creating shots in another in other varieties of ways because teams had to respect the jump shot so much. I think you could see a similar development process to that with Kevin Knox because right now, like teams don't totally respect the jump shot yet. And they close out a little bit more under control, like totally under control, basically just because they believe that they would rather have him take that shot than kind of try and attack. But He's still not quite fluid. In, it's not fluidity with the ball in his hands. He just doesn't have the handle yet, I think, to take advantage of that. I think that if he keeps getting reps with a jump shot that is trustworthy, that you're going to start seeing the ball handling kind of come along a little bit quicker. Yeah, it's it, it's it's fascinating with him. It, it's more of a bet than any. Like you're, it, it is. And it's also, I would say, it's also a bet on the surrounding talent that you have in the yeah. NBA. Because you know that if he's going to be on a team with any credibility, that they're going to have somebody who can get him the ball, ideally two guys. And so maybe he doesn't end up, I don't trust this handle enough to really have him at this point be a grab and go guy. He could eventually get there. I I, I don't write off any guy now coming into the league who has athleticism. I don't write them off in that way. Yeah. But if he just, you know, if when the shot goes up and when somebody gets a rebound, if he's just one of the guys that runs out, he can do a couple different things there. You know, he can throw down if he has to, he can shoot, sh- he can shoot. And the bigger point, so that's in transition in the half court, is just that he's not going to have to do as much. And then if he ev- uh, develops all that, then then you can use it. It's a little bit different than college in that sort of a way because you know that that talent is going to be there because if it isn't there, then the team just sucks. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that, to be honest. I, like like I said, with Kevin Knox, I'm just betting, basically. It, it's an informed gamble because I've done this long enough now to where I can like kind of pick out these little things, but... I understand that it's a gamble. You know what I mean? I do. Just because I, I, you know how I am with this sort of thing. While we were talking, I looked up. I'm like, oh, I wonder where the Lakers, like where their 538 projection is right now. They're projected to to end up with the sixth worst record, which would mean that if that held in the in the lottery, which of course it wouldn't necessarily, that the Sixers would get the sixth pick in this draft. Yeah, that would be pretty fun. That would be fun. That'd be really fun. That'd be great. So now we will have a very brief conversation about if that happens, what would you enjoy? What like what would you want to see happen there? At number six. Because remember, they could also, they would have the assets to move up a little bit. It's going to be very hard if this top is as good as we think it is to move up into it. It's going to be almost impossible, but not impossible. So, so let's say that like the top three go, like just the top three, right? Like, you know, 
Mm-hmm. Bagley, Porter, and Aiton are gone. Number one on my board for them would probably be Michael Porter. That would just be ridiculous to me. Like it would be, it'd be Kevin Knox, except like a more polished Kevin Knox, right? <laughs> right. Like, and and you could theoretically, like, I I could totally see them going Porter, Simmons, Covington, and Bead starting all four of them. Yes, easily. They're doing it now. Basically, with he's he's like he's like he's like super charge. Yeah. yeah. I think second for them. I think I would probably go Jaron Jackson. I think that would be a really, I think that would create a really interesting dynamic defensively for them because I think that they would retain mobility while still being able to like space the floor offensively. And like anytime that you can be bigger, you want to be bigger. If you believe that Ben Simmons can go. It would would be a wonderful hedge on Embiid's health. Yeah, that, that's because like you and I, you and I talked earlier about how Jaron Jackson's path to being a solid starter is pretty clear cut. Right. So if you have a guy that good on a rookie scale contract for four years and then team control after that, you will have him if you want him for the entirety of Joel Embiid's contract. And so you can you can work with that. And and also if he ends up being good and Joel Embiid stays healthy, you can trade him. Right. I think that next would be Knox for me for them. Like I think that that would be good. Like I. I like I would be totally fine for that for all the reasons that is kind of stated and laid out. I think then Bridges probably uh, just a pure lineup connector. I would probably then have Bomba just because if that's you know, but I guess that you don't really need to go that much farther because if you're talking six, yeah. like then these guys aren't going to get there. But like that, that would be where I would have them. I think. Just for my own entertainment, just having having Sexton on that team, I wouldn't start him in all likelihood just because of the the challenges with Ben Simmons. But just having him for when Simmons sits would be that would make them even better of a league pass team than they already are. Yeah, but you know what? They have Markel Fultz, and I still am a major believer in Markel Fultz, regardless right. of I- what you know the issues are right now. Right. And with Fultz, like my idea is, is that I actually like him better with Simmons and theoretically with Embiid than without. Like, I, I trust his ability on off ball in some ways yeah. more than I, I'm saying on ball. He's going to be a dynamo. And also like Sexton is a hedge in the and he's not a hedge in the same way that Jaron Jackson is because Jaron Jackson could actually replace Embiid if need be. Sexton absolutely could not. That's only primarily for my amusement. It's like I want the players that I think would be fun on the teams that I watch everybody, but on the teams that I watch a little bit more of than anybody else. But yeah, Knox is Knox is fascinating. And it is the other possibility there at six would be that it would open the door for them to make a trade for somebody who is already in the league who is very good. Yeah, I think that that would make sense. The other guy that I would just kind of throw out there as a dark horse, I think Mikael Bridges would be a stud on that team. Like you just throw him next to Robert Covington and next to Ben Simmons and next to Joel Embiid and put them with a, with a J.J. Redick or whoever – that team would be impossible to score on. Right. And the other part of the goal, first of all, they could use that moving down, sort of yeah. like the, the the Wolves did in the Jimmy Butler trade, though that trade was insane for a million reasons. They could do that there, or they could theoretically, if if Bridges stays in that like 14, 15 range, depending on where their draft, their their own pick ends up, they could maybe even try to move up there and, and get him using some of their other assets. I mean, let, let's be clear here. If the Bull, or if... Uh, the Timberwolves like kind of knew what they were doing in terms of drafting. They could have ended up with what I guess John Collins theoretically, OG, OG and Anobi. Like we all like I really like Lowry Markin, and I'm not saying they could have ended up. Oh with God, Don, Donovan Mitchell on that team would have been hilarious and in some ways great. Well, they they couldn't have gotten Mitchell, could they? Because they moved down. To oh yeah, that's right. He went. Yeah, that's right. They moved down to 16. I was just thinking about the idea of if you played Mitchell, if you played Mitchell, Jimmy Butler. 
Andrew Wiggins and Carl Anthony Towns on the same thing with the ball just like split into like five yeah. different basketballs and they can all shoot at the same time. So like they could have ended up with John Collins, OG Ananobi. I mean, they're not going to take Kuzma at 16, but like, like they could have. God, he's been so much. I, I didn't watch that much of Utah because last year, I mean, other than UCLA, I didn't watch much Pac-12, but he has been so much better than I ever thought he would be. Yeah. I mean, me too. I, I was, I was relatively lower on Kuzma than what most people were. I just didn't do enough homework into it. I would say, uh, just didn't do enough homework into the work level, you know, just how good of a dude he is. If I'd have done that, I'd have had him higher, but like, you know, that, that was just one that I missed on. He, he's better than he was at Utah. Let's kind of be clear on that. And Utah never utilized him in the manner that he should be utilized in, but he's been awesome so far. He's been probably what, like the fifth best rookie, something like that. Fourth or fifth best rookie. Yeah, I mean, he's he's in that conversation. I mean, it, it's also hard because he's scoring a ton and he's been great in that way, but he's been bad defensively, yeah. which comes around. And so you, you, it's not so much like, yeah, I would say he's probably been maybe even third or fourth best so far, but how you project that out. But he's been wonderful and it's it's a delightful story. And, you know, the Lakers are relevant in a lot of these pictures just because they're, they're one of the few teams that's going to have cap space and they are the Lakers. So... Yeah, I, this is going to be it's going to be a really fun run with what's going on. What's going on? Do you want? Is there anything else you want to talk about? NBA, college, whatever. I don't think so, man. I think we've kind of run through everything I've got right now. Yeah, and there will be a lot to watch. Of of course, people can look at at your work for the athletic and something. I'm going to try to tweet them out when I have the chances. Well, it's probably not going to become columns, though. I advocated and wanted to become the executive producer on them last time. I'll try to tweet out those games that we've chosen as like good NBA, good college games for NBA fans to watch. And we'll, I'll try. To, I'll try to make a bigger point of that. Yeah, I need to do a better job of that too. Like, I, I should probably, I should probably have our. Uh, because like you have that document that you shared with me, I should probably do that to help you out a little bit more too. Just from like some of the guys that you don't necessarily know. Like tonight, Chandler Hutchison and Troy Brown are playing. Like, do you know who Chandler Hutchison is? I know who he is, but I don't know that much about. Yeah, him. so like he's like a six foot seven with a seven foot wingspan, three four from Boise State, who's really good. And I had him at like thirty five on my mock draft in mid November. So like, like that's not something I would expect you to know, but it's something that's probably worth sharing. Nice. So thank uh, as always, thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, man. Uh, I will talk to you soon. And thank you all for listening, everyone. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at The Athletic, specifically the Fieldhouse, the college basketball site. And you can also listen to his Game Theory podcast, which he does regularly. And I was actually a guest on his show that came out Monday night. We didn't record these at the same time, but because it took me a while to edit, they came out at about the same time. We talked about the Eastern Conference. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. That's S-A-M underscore V-E-C-E-N-I-E. Fun time of the year for this show and, of course, all my other work just because we're getting a sense of teams, but still a lot is changing around. And I'm excited to to go in a lot of different directions with this show, of course, for the, for the time being. And there are always angles to do as we kind of go through December and, of course, this year, December is very different than in other years because we had those extra weeks of the season at the beginning. So this is more like around Thanksgiving or even before that. So lots to keep an eye on. And I'm probably going to do more in the general realm than specific teams because when you do specific teams, you often narrow the field as interesting as some of them are. I love the podcast I did with Derek Bodner, but you want to want to kind of keep those limited to when there's a real a real big story. So that's going to be more the angle I, I go. But of course, your insight is always appreciated. Good, bad, or indifferent. Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the single best way. 
If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Daniel Rue, but it's not as good. And if you want to support the show, there are a lot of great ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. You can subscribe, you can download every episode, you can spread the word, and you can check out our sponsors. For this episode, that is Action Heat, heatable clothing using rechargeable batteries, very cool. Action-heat.com slash RealGM gets you 15% off your entire order. And then DraftKings. DraftKings is a great way to engage with your favorite sports. And if you go to DraftKings.com and use the promo code CLNS, you can get entered in some pretty awesome contests. And CLNS is also CLNS Media. Their app is a great way to check out this show and a lot of the other ones, including Sam's Game Theory Podcast. They have their own app, and it's pretty cool. And so you can check out this podcast and many others there. Or you can use podcast player for choosing, but CLNS is a cool way to do that, and they've been a partner of the show for a long time. Excited to see where this goes from here, and thrilled to be writing and talking about it in so many other places. Of course, Real Jam Radio, Dunked On, Warriors Watch, which is my Warriors podcast, which comes out basically whenever I want to do it, and then my writing at The Athletic, Sporting News, Real GM, including the CBA Encyclopedia, added a new piece on the Over 38 rule this past week, and my book, 100 Things Warriors Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die, which has been out for about a month now, been thrilled to have some very nice responses about it, done a couple of signings as well, so if you want to get it, you can. You can get it as, as a book. I prefer local bookstores, but you can also check out the Kindle version is on Amazon, and then Triumph Books, which is my publisher, their website has a PDF version. It has ebook versions. So you can be able to find it there. It does not have an audiobook version. If there's enough interest, maybe I'll either do it myself or wrangle somebody else into doing it in the future, but not for right now. Got plenty of other things going on. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.